Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I was joking with some people yesterday that somebody must have known that I was going to be teaching today because I see like six different boxes of tissues all within like an arm's reach of me. So somebody knew what was happening. Um, I think it's, it's, it's really cool and I think it's noteworthy that we don't plan like the music in conjuncture with what we're going to be teaching about. Um, and one of the people that it is talked about in, in that last song, James, who was, it said James was sent to heaven by the edge of Herod's sword. That's uh, kind of what we're going to be talking about today. And those things, like I said, they're just, they're not planned by, by us, but I completely and wholeheartedly believe that, uh, that the Spirit is the one that uh, ordains that and that plans that. Um, and so today, with that being said, we are continuing on in the Acts series that we've been in. Um, I have not been here for all of the series. I haven't heard everybody teach. I know Brian taught. I know Kevin taught. And uh, last week, Chris taught. Um, and so where we're going to be is Acts 12. So if you want to flip open to Acts 12, that's where we're going to be. Um, now, the book of Acts, like, it seems like every chapter that you read when you go through that book, something, something new is happening. There's a new place. There's new people. There's just new crazy things that happen. And when you read it, you, you do see crazy things. You're like, you see things that you're like, wow, how in the world did that happen? Like, man, God is so awesome. God's so cool that he did that. Um, but one of the things that I've always wrestled with when I read through the book of Acts is why does my life not look like this? And why does the life of the people around me and our communities, why doesn't our life look more like this book? And I, I, I just, I think that that's just a reality that we don't always face, but I think nonetheless it's a reality that our lives oftentimes do not look like what we see in not only the book of Acts, but really uh, the Bible in general. Um, if I had to try to condense the entire book of Acts into one sentence, which is really difficult, um, I would, I would put it this way. Um, to go ahead and throw that slide up there. <laughs> well, it's off a little bit. I'll read it anyway. Um, but I would, I would put it this way. God, by his word, through his spirit, working in and through surrendered servants who have entrusted themselves to him, is carrying out his good plan of salvation, and it cannot be stopped. The end of the song that we just sang that's exactly what it said, and that's exactly what Duke said as he prayed, is that this is a mission that can't be stopped. We are caught up in something that is so much bigger than ourselves, that's so far beyond just us, that it's something that has been established since before the beginning of time, since before the creation of the world, and we get to be a part of that. Um, but like I said, our, our lives don't always look like what we see in this book. Um, some people will actually say, though, that they don't believe that the kind of things that you see in the book of Acts are actually things that happen today. Some people say that those things have ceased. Uh, some people will say that God did that in the early church only to show, or only to validate, basically, that what was happening was actually true, and it was him who was behind it. This sounds harsh, but I think that's a big load. I think uh, God has never had to validate himself to men. He has never had to, he, d he does what he does and men respond to that. He does not say, I really need to convince him. I really need to let him know that it's really me who's doing this. God does what he does and men respond to that. Men and women respond to that. Um, so Acts 12, before we start, three 
three absolute truths that I think we have to identify before we can really go any further with, with where we're going today. One of those is that if you're alive today, first of all, you're alive for a reason, and you have a life. <laughs> the second truth is, in this life, you will be a servant. Third truth is that if you have life, you will die. All three of those things are imminent to human beings. Uh, but there's kind of a counter question that goes along with all those absolute truths, and that's what kind. Okay, you're going to have a life. Well, what kind of life are you going to live? You're going to be a servant. Well, what kind of servant are you going to be? And you're going to die a death. Well, what kind of death are you going to die? And I think that though I listed them in the opposite order, I think that the order that they can take root in our lives is actually backwards. I think the kind of death that we die really determines the kind of servant that we're going to be, which determines the kind of life that we're going to live. So there are two kinds of servants that we can be. The first kind is what I would call a skeptical servant. And, and this kind of servant is a servant who they just, they don't trust that the way that the Bible says to live, the way who God says that he is, they don't trust that that's actually true. They might, they might kind of live their lives like they say they do, but in reality, there's a lot of skepticism there. Um, and the definition of skeptic is one that has doubts or one that, uh, one that does not believe. And then the second kind of servant that we can be is a surrendered servant. And I think that this is really the kind of servant that God's looking for, and I think it's the kind of servants that we get to see in Acts 12. But the cool thing about Acts 12 is that we actually get a contrast. We get this kind of back and forth, this foil. Foil, I don't know if you know that word or not, but foil is a literary term, and it basically means the opposite of one thing, how one thing is kind of the opposite of the other. Um, it's, it's what narrator, or it's what authors will put in books. They'll have one character who, you know, is the Christ figure, and then the other one who's basically kind of the, the devil figure, if you will. Um, and so surrendered servants, surrendered servants, re- regardless of which one you are, actually, a servant entrusts themselves to someone. Surrendered servants, they entrust themselves to God. And skeptical servants, they entrust themselves to themselves. Um, Joe, if you can throw that other slide up there. Definition of entrust is to assign responsibility for doing something to someone or to put something in someone else's protection or care. We will be a servant in this life. We will entrust ourselves to something. But the question is, what kind of servant are we going to be and who are we going to entrust ourselves to? Now, I would argue that most of us um, entrust ourselves to ourselves if we had to be honest. Most of us uh, have a very difficult time truly giving every aspect of our life over to God because, in all honesty, we don't believe that our life is safest in his hands. And I think that that's what the entire point of the Bible is. That's what the entire point of, of human history is, is the fact that God is trying to show us that our lives are as safe as they can possibly be in his hands, not in our own, not in the hands of someone else, not in the hands of, of money, not in the hands of anything else. Our lives are safest in his hands. So we're going to jump in right now. Acts 12, verse 1. Um, give a little bit of background here. Chris, he talked about 
um, evangelism last week and the way that chapter, and he ended with, uh, with chapter 11, and basically what was going on at this time in history is that the church is rapidly expanding, it's rapidly growing, the gospel is really starting to take root, and people are now starting to take notice. This is something that even kings, rulers of nations, are starting to, are starting to see. And so that's why the very beginning of this chapter, the very first verse, it says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, a little bit more background on Herod. It's easy to read this chapter and see Herod and be like, man, what a wicked guy. He must hate God. He must have nothing to do with, with religion. He must, he, he must just hate God and want to destroy everything that God wants to do. That's not necessarily the case. Actually, scholars say that Herod is somebody who was raised with a strong Jewish identity. So, He's much like the Pharisees, and if you know anything about the Pharisees, the Pharisees are people who they knew all the rules of God. They knew all his ways, all his commands, all that stuff, yet when God was right in front of them, they didn't know who he was. They are people who, as Jesus describes, they're people who praise me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. So we need to kind of be sure that we see Herod through that lens, not through the lens of a wicked man who hates God, um, because I think that's really important, especially for us who, who come to church and for us who uh, would call ourselves religious. Um, but right off the bat, at the beginning of this chapter, you start to see this contrast between these, these kinds of servants. You start to see characteristics of each kind. The skeptical servant. In this part of the chapter, you see they feel threatened when control seems to be slipping away. Something's happening in Herod's region that he has really no control over. Something's happening, and it's a movement of God. And that's what, that's what I think we need to take notice of. Skeptical servants, they feel threatened by movements of God. They feel threatened by movements of God because it's something that's outside of their own control. In, in the church in America, and I'm going to refer to the church in America a lot today, mostly because of the fact that I just got back from a, <clears throat> a trip to India, and I saw a lot of stuff over there that I don't necessarily see over here, and I see a lot of stuff here that I don't necessarily see over there. So I'm kind of going to make that comparison back and forth, um, which, by the way, I want to make known that I want that to be as gracious as I can make it. I don't want today to be something that's filled with condemnation. I don't want today to be something that's filled with guilt or anything like that. I want it to be something that compels us to, to be a part of this mission, that compels us to entrust ourselves to the God that made us. And so that, that's my prayer for today. So really, uh, I would appreciate, even right now, if, if you all would pray that, that that's how the Lord would, would use my mouth today, because I know that I have a tendency, uh, especially if you ask my wife, to uh, deliver things in a more firm, harsh tone than I would like. So, please pray for me. Um, so, skeptical servants feel threatened when control seems to be slipping away. Why? Because they trust themselves, and they, so if, they don't, if they're not the ones who have control, well, what in the world are we going to do then? If we don't have control, who are we going to trust? Um, the, the other way we can see that uh, they feel threatened when control seems to be slipping away is that Herod assigns four squads of soldiers to one man. 
Now, I tried to figure out what that number actually is, what that number of, what, how many soldiers were in a squad of soldiers. I couldn't figure it out. It seemed to be a lot of people, though, anywhere from like 20 to 100. I don't know. Anyway, nonetheless, let's say it's on the lower end, 20 people guarding one man. Like, are you kidding me? Why do you, why do you need that? It's because of the fact that Herod felt threatened by this man. He didn't feel threatened just by this man. He felt threatened by the God that was working through this man. And how often do we really feel threatened by the work that God wants to do in our life. It's because of the fact that we want the control. It's because of the fact that we aren't willing to give up every part of our life. And so when God tries to get in there and he tries to change a part of our lives, when he tries to really get in and work in a part of our lives that we haven't given him, we put up barriers. Herod has four squads of barriers between himself and the very thing that would end up saving him. How often do we do that? Number two, skeptical servants care more about pleasing people than pleasing God. Verse three, it says, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Skeptical servants are slaves to people pleasing. And let me tell you that I can be a slave to people pleasing. But in reference to that, let me also tell you that the cross has freed us from the need to please people. We are called to be people lovers that does not equate to being people pleasers. Now, the reason that I put such emphasis on that is because in light of the mission that we're called into, people pleasing can destroy that. We can be so afraid that we're going to offend someone or so afraid that someone's not going to like us that we really end up withholding the gospel from those people. We really end up withholding the truth that those people maybe need to hear on the altar of keeping them happy with us. I was actually, I'm pulling out my phone because I'm looking at something. I'm not texting, trust me. Um, I was reading this morning but before, uh, before this. I was in that back room, and uh, I saw this post on Facebook by a friend, and it says, a church that doesn't provoke any crisis, a gospel that doesn't unsettle, a word of God that doesn't get under, that doesn't get under anyone's skin, a word of God that doesn't touch the real sin of the society in which it is being proclaimed. What gospel is that? It's uh, Oscar Romero, Archbishop of El Salvador, slain in 1980. I have no idea who that guy is, but I believe that what he said is true. We cannot be people who are slaves to people-pleasing, or else it is very difficult for the Lord to work through us. It is very difficult to be instruments in the hand of a God who wants to change the world. Now here comes in the contrast between what we see with the skeptical servant and what we see with the surrendered servant. Now Peter and James in this chapter are the examples of a surrendered servants and the people in the next part of this chapter who we're going to see are gathered together and praying. But for this section, it's Peter and James. What we see is surrendered servants embrace their lack of control. I think what we see by the lack of words from Peter and James in this text is that they had submitted themselves to what was being done to them. They had embraced the fact that they had no control over this situation. Peter had four squads of soldiers guarding him. What in the world was he going to do? Overtake all of them? I don't think so. Peter was not a trained assassin. He was not some sort of military guy. He was a common guy. So he had no other choice than to embrace the lack of control that he was caught up in. Well, what about James? I mean, I can imagine the kind of scene that it was when this guy got beheaded in front of a crowd of people. I mean, do you think he was, do you think that James was about to deny his faith? Do you think that James was about to run away and try and flee? No, it doesn't say that. It says that he did nothing. That's what we see. The lack of what it says is 
we know that he embraced the lack of control that he had. The other contrast is that surrendered servants care more about pleasing God than pleasing people. A couple chapters ago in Acts 4, we got to see a, uh, uh, an illustration of Peter and John, not Peter and James, but Peter and John. They were before the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were telling them, you need to stop preaching in this name. You need to stop proclaiming this message. We do not like this. Stop it right now. And this is what they said. It says, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. They were not interested in pleasing the people around them. They were interested in speaking the truth that they know the people around them needed to hear in order to know the God that they were serving. But how often do we, like I said, on the altar of having people like us, do we withhold the truth that we know we need to speak into somebody's life? And the effect that that has on us carrying out the mission that we've been called into is devastating. It's devastating. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a situation where I know, I know exactly the word. You know, you know the verse that says, speak a word in season? I know exactly the word that I need to speak to this person, but I don't know how they're going to take it, so I'm just going to let God work on that person. Well, the, the fact of the matter is that maybe God trying to work on that person is exactly what he's trying to do when he gives that word to you. Maybe God trying to work on that person, you, you're the very instrument that he's trying to use to do that. But if we care more about people-pleasing, we're never going to allow him to work through us in that way. And at the heart of it, once again, it goes back to because we haven't entrusted ourselves to him, we don't believe that he can actually do what he says he's going to do, that he will actually use us despite what the words that we, we speak may be. You can jump down to the next verse, and I'm going to read through this whole thing. It's verses 6 to 19. I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to spend nearly as much time as I spent on those first five verses in these because it would take way too long, but uh, I'm going to read through it and then we'll talk about it. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, "Get up quickly." And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. She kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. 
Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. I think the main point, if we take anything from that passage, I think we ought to take the point that surrendered servants rely on and wait for the Lord. Peter was asleep the night before he was about to be executed. He was sleeping. I don't know about you. I don't know if I would have the ability to be sleeping the night before I was about to be executed in ancient Rome. That would not have been a very pleasant experience. But nonetheless, he's asleep. (laughs) He's waiting on the Lord. And not only Peter, but you see a group of people who are gathered together who are praying for Peter. Just like at the end of that first section, it said that they were gathered together and they were praying earnestly for Peter. Then you see again, they're gathered together. uh, And when Peter gets there and they're praying, what would that look like if a group of believers who, when a situation was outside of their control, gathered together and prayed rather than trying to take it into their own hands. This is, this is what I'm going to refer back to India, so get ready. Um, this is what I think is a major deficiency in the church in America. I think we have such a skewed sense of, of self-reliance. We have so much self-reliance and so little God-reliance that it, it, it can destroy us. When I was over there, we, we would go into villages with the pastors, and, you know, they, they didn't have a church building, and so we'd kind of ask questions like, hey, where do you guys meet? Who do you, who do you talk to? What led you here? They would say, well, God put a burden on our hearts, so we went here. And then we would, and they kind of looked at us like, why are you asking us these questions? And then we said, well, you know, do you guys have a place to meet? Like, do you, where, where do you guys meet? And they said, well, we, right now we meet in the place where uh, one of the local people here let us meet in their home. And then we said, well, are you guys going to have a building soon? And they were just, like I said, they just looked at us like, God is going to take care of all this. Like, we, God told us to go here. He put a burden on our heart for us to be here. So we went. We didn't ask any questions. We knew he was going to provide. I can't tell you how many times I heard that. God will provide. God will provide. We talked about money. One guy was in need of 40,000 rupees, which isn't the equal to $40,000 here, so, but it's still a lot of money over there. This guy was in need of 40,000 rupees to do something, and we said, well, how, what are you doing to try to get that? He said, I'm praying, and he was like, I'm, I'm asking the Lord what he needs us to do, and we're just, we're just waiting, and in the moment, we're, we're being obedient, and it's like, wow, what a novel concept, but the crazy thing is that those moments when we have no control, those moments when we wait for the Lord and when we rely on the Lord, those are the moments when he gets to shine the most. Those are the moments when he, when he gets all the glory. Because if we have no control, if something gets accomplished, if something incredible gets accomplished, who are we going to credit it to? Well, the only person that we can credit it to is the Lord. And so we need to be people as surrendered servants who rely on the Lord and who wait on the Lord. I can't remember. Brian, was it you who taught about waiting on the Lord a while ago? Yeah, I think it was, but we need to be so much better at that because we really, I know that for me specifically, I'm so horrible at it because of the fact that, let's be honest, a lot of the things that go on in our lives in the spheres that we're a part of as middle-class Americans, and let's just say, as I'm looking at this room, most of us middle-class white Americans, anything we want, we can kind of get. If we want to get a new car, 
even if we don't have the money right up front, we can get a loan. We can get a car. If, if we you know, want to buy a house, same deal with the house. If we want to get things, we can get things. If there's a situation that occurs, a crisis that occurs, most of the time we can take care of it. We have the means ourselves to take care of it. And so what that does is it, it lessens our understanding and our clear sense of the fact of, of just how much we need God. And it makes us believe that we can accomplish most things on our own. And I think that makes its way into the church. I think that's why we oftentimes see this consumer sovereignty kind of uh, approach to church. And I don't know if you know what that word means. It's actually a business term. And what it means is that the consumer has the sovereignty, <laughs> obviously. Um, it means that the su- consumer has the sovereignty, which means that as a business, you do whatever you need to do to appeal to whoever your consumer is, whoever your customer is. So if they start liking one thing versus the thing that you offer, you change that. If, you, if they want to go back to the old thing that you did, you change that. And how often is that what we do in church? It becomes about what do the people want, and so we give the people what they want. It's never been about what we want. It's been about what we need. We don't tell people just what they want. We tell people what they need. And I am so thankful that I had people in my life at one point who told me what I needed and not what I wanted, because what I wanted was I wanted praise from people I wanted acceptance from people. I wanted to be known. I wanted all those things, but I had no idea where that actually came from. And I am so glad that I had people in my life and that I had a God in my life who doesn't just tell me what I want to hear, but who tells me what I need to hear. We have to be people who rely on the Lord and who are willing to give up our control of our own lives. Another question that I asked, and I don't know if you guys ask this as, as we sit here and read through this, but a question that I asked is, God, why did you spare Peter and not James? Why did James seem to get the short end of the stick there? We do that in our lives, two sides of that coin. When it comes to pain and suffering, we ask, why me? We ask the Lord, why, does, why is this happening to me? Why have you done this to me? Um, and it makes me think of a, a John Piper quote. If you know me very well, you know that I <clears throat> read a lot of John Piper and listen to a lot of John Piper. don't agree with absolutely everything he says, but um, this is a quote that he says in regards to pain and suffering. He says, Every single millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that pain. And in my mind, basically what he's saying is he's quoting the verse that says, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Your pain and suffering has purpose. Trust him even when you don't see the purpose. And I would submit to you that I don't think that, I think we rarely see the purpose in our pain and suffering in that moment because of the fact that if we did see it in that moment, the the whole reason that God allowed that to come into our life, it would not be worth anything because we wouldn't be transformed like we would be when we have to rely on him because we don't know what the purpose of it is. I hope that makes sense. Um, so we, we have to trust that in those moments when we're experiencing something and we're just like, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Why are you, why are you doing this to me? We have to trust that he's using it for a purpose. Now in, regard, in the light of mission, in the light of the, the great commission that he's called us to, that's even more prevalent because of the fact that Jesus says when we join him in this mission, we are going to face persecution, we're going to be reviled, we're going to face opposition, we're going to have trials. And so if we're constantly asking the question, God, why me? Man, we're not going to get very far. And I, when I was in India, I saw people 
who, whose roof was ripped off of their home because of a, what we would consider an average thunderstorm, whose food supply had basically been depleted, whose, whose homes the government had actually come into, put TNT all around, and blew to smithereens and basically said, sorry about your luck. If we're people who haven't entrusted ourselves to God, we will never believe that when those kind of things happen that they could possibly be used for our good. The other side of the coin is we ask the question, well, why not me? And this has to do with prosperity and with gifts. When we look around and we see other people's lives that are filled with something that we want, whether it's a gift that they have or whether it's a, a, a blessing that they've been given, we ask, well, God, well, why didn't I get that blessing? I'm doing the same, and it happens in ministry too. I'm doing the same ministry that they're doing, but why do you seem to be blessing them more than you seem to be blessing me? That wouldn't even be a question if we just entrusted ourselves to the God that made us and believed that our life was as safe as it could possibly be in his hands. We would believe, God, the thing that you've given me, that's what I need. And so I trust that you've given me what I need, and so I can carry on with that. I don't need what that person has. But we have a hard time doing that. Peter even had a hard time doing that. At the end of the Gospel of John, in chapter 21, Peter's talking with Jesus, and, and John's kind of, the, the Apostle John, he's, he's kind of near them, and it says that when Peter saw him, talking about John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. God has given absolutely every single one of us who is a follower of Jesus, he has given you a specific or many gifts to use. Um, in the book of 1 Peter, I think, this, I think those words from Jesus sunk in because he wrote about them later on in the, in the book of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 4, verse 10. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Our lives, in light of the Great Commission, are going to look very, very different. Now, there are certain aspects of our lives that need to all look the same, and those kind of things are how surrendered we are, how much we rely on the Lord. But, there, but just like Peter says, there's different gifts that God gives all of us so that we can carry out his mission. We need to not look at the people around us and wish that we had their gift or wish that we had more than we actually have. We need to be content. When we've entrusted ourselves to the God that made us, that's when we will taste what contentment is like. That's when we will understand that. For the one who has entrusted themselves to God, there is no need for comparison. Let's jump over to verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. There's those moments in, in Scripture where I call them comma moments, where you kind of, <laughs> there's, a sentence that's, that's, uh, there's a sentence that's said, and then there's a comma and something else in between it that you're kind of like, why in the world did they put that there? That was not needed. That didn't add anything to the story. That didn't add anything to my understanding of what this said. But I think that this is one of those moments in verse 21 when it says, on, a, on, a, on an appointed day, comma, 
Herod put on his royal robes, comma, took his seat upon the throne, comma, and delivered an oration to them. It could have just been on an appointed day, Herod uh, delivered an oration to them. But there's a reason that those other things were put in there. And I think it's to show us the fact that skeptical servants desire to take the throne of their own lives. It goes back to control. We have such a desire to maintain control over our own lives. We have such a desire to be the God of our own lives. It's the heart of our fallen nature. It's the heart of sin. We desire to be the God of our own lives. And skeptical servants, number two, skeptical servants desire to receive glory for themselves. Herod didn't say, no, no, I'm not a God. He didn't say anything. And I think it's because of the fact that he was basking in the fact that he was getting this glory from people. It makes me think of John the Baptist when people ask him, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? And you know what he says immediately? He doesn't tell them who he is. He says, I am not the Christ. If Herod was a surrendered servant, and if Herod had entrusted himself to God, if he heard people saying this, he would not have sat there silent, basking in the glory. He would have said, I am not a God. There is one God. But how often do we want that kind of recognition from people? And how often does that get in the way of, of our mission? The contrast, surrendered servants desire to point to the throne of God. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' entire life, he never once had any desire to take the throne of God. He was always pointing to it. He said, I do only what I see my father doing. He said, uh, he said, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's when he was about to go to the cross. It says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus felt no need to be on the throne of his own life. He actually didn't even view his life as his own. He, views it, he viewed his life as God's. And so I would ask the question, who's on the throne of your life? Are you on the throne of your own life? Is another person on the throne of your own life? Is another person a relationship, whether that be dating relationship, spouse, whatever, child to parent relationship? Is that, what, is that what's governing your life? Or is the God of the universe the one that's on the throne of your life? The second contrast, surrendered servants desire to give glory to God. They see even their own death as a way that God gets glory. James like I said, he did not utter any words as he was about to be killed, at least that are recorded here. He was silent. You know who else was silent when he was about to be killed? Jesus. He didn't say anything. He gave no defense. He had, given, he had already died to himself. He had already entrusted himself. So what was the point? What was the point of he felt no need to defend himself? He felt no need to maintain control. He didn't see his life as his own. And that leads us to the question that I asked earlier. The third absolute truth in this life is that we're going to die. But the question is, what kind of death are you going to die? Now, I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about the kind of death that the Bible talks about when it says, die to yourself, deny yourself. We're crucified with Christ. Herod was killed. The kind of death he died was that his life was taken despite his efforts to preserve it. 
Whereas Jesus, James, and Stephen, who we heard about in that song, who was also martyred, they willingly laid down their lives. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Man, what a backwards way to look at things. What a completely contradictory, counter-cultural way to look at things than how we do in our American culture. What we're taught, and I can say this especially, I'm at, I go to Wright State right now and I'm in the College of Business, what I can tell you is that in almost every one of my classes is you look out for yourself, you make yourself look as good as you possibly can, can look, you do whatever you have to do to get top dollar in whatever project you're a part of, and, and that's how you live your life. You live your life entirely for yourself. You don't die to yourself, you build yourself up in order to find your life. And it's completely wrong, because how are we able to obey the commands of God when that's the way that we look at life. Think about the things that God commands us to do. He says, he says love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, forgive one another, uh, bear with one another. How in the world are you going to do that when you haven't laid down your own life? That's the only way that you can do it successfully. We can try to do it, and it ends up being entirely exhausting. We usually end up failing, and we just can't do it. But if we have entrusted ourselves to the holy God that made us, if we believe that what he's called us to do is actually the right way to do things, if we believe that, that, that the way that he's called us to live our lives is the best way to live our lives, then we'll be willing to do those things. And we'll not only be willing, we'll have the ability to do those things. Do you ever feel like you're enslaved by something? Whether that be a substance, whether that be people-pleasing, whether that be whatever it may be, the whole reason that we feel slavery is because we, haven't, and we are entrusting ourselves to the wrong things. When we entrust ourselves to the one that made us, we finally have the freedom to not be offended anymore. We finally have the freedom to not care about what other people think. We finally have the freedom to live the way that we were actually designed to live. It's the only way. But we just, we have such a hard time giving into that. I mean, Jesus, think about Jesus. He lived the perfect life. Now, a lot of people will attribute the fact that he lived a perfect life to the fact that he was fully God. Well, it also says that he was fully man. Well, yeah, people say, but he was fully God. That's how he wasn't able to sin. That's how he didn't sin. Well, I don't know the exact answer to that. I don't know how all that works, but what I can tell you is that Jesus was a human being, and he lived out perfectly what it looks like to entrust his entire life to the Father. I already read some of these earlier, but I'll read them again. Jesus said, I can only do what I see the Father doing. First uh, Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And the one that absolutely wrecks me is Luke 23.46. Now it's when Jesus is hanging up on a cross, <laughs> agonizing pain, nails through his hands and his feet, body beaten gruesomely, and he, it says, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathes his last. Doesn't that sound familiar? He breathes his last. Where do we just read that? Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. You're going to die a death here, but you can die two vastly different deaths. You can die a death while trying to cling desperately to your own life, or you can die a death where you willingly say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now let me also remind you that 
This same Jesus who says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, is the same one that said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They weren't two different people. It's the same cross. It's the same Jesus. Now, how, how does he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? But it's because of the fact that even in the midst of knowing that he had been completely forsaken, that the full wrath of God for sin was on him, he trusted that his life was best placed in the Father's hands. That no matter what was happening to him, and there were, this was a reality, he really was forsaken in this moment. The full wrath of sin was on him. God, in this moment, had left him. But Jesus believed so strongly in the character of God and who he was that he said, I am still going to commit my life into your hands because I believe that's where it's best placed. It's the heart of sin. The heart of sin is not trusting that our lives are as safe as they can be in God's hands. It's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve when they were in the garden. They didn't believe that what God told them was the best way for their life. God said, you can have everything that I've made, but don't, you can't have this one thing. But they didn't believe him. They, they thought that they needed to take their life into their own hands, into their own, their own control. And I think that's the exact same thing that, that you and I do. I mean, I know that I do it. Man, I do it all the time. I do it with money. Money's a big one for me. I have a hard time giving that aspect of my life into God's hands and trusting that that's the best place for it. Now, I know every one of us has a different way that we struggle with that, but nonetheless, we all struggle with it. But man, what this Bible tells us over and over and over and over again is that our lives are safe as they could possibly ever be in the hands of our Father, in the hands of the one that made us. But the question is, are we going to entrust our lives to him? Now, the end of this chapter gives us a really, really harsh example of what happens when we live a life of being a skeptical servant, when we live a life of refusal to give our lives to the Lord. It, it essentially says that when you live a life like Herod lived, when you live that kind of life, you end up being worm snacks. That's what the result of your life is. Now, that's harsh, but it's the truth. Our, your life ends up being for naught if you live it all for yourself. But what Jesus says is that the kind of life that he offers us is abundant life. It's like that quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, uh, we're, like, we're like children who are playing in the mud, making mud pies, and we don't know what's meant by a holiday at the sea. We don't know that there's a feast prepared by our parents at home because the only thing that we, we think mud pies are as good as it can get. Man, it's so true of us. And so today, that's just, that's the question that, that I ask you. That's, if one thing you live with today is, have you really entrusted your life into God's hands? I think, like I said, we can kind of, we can kind of wave the banner of, of God, wave the banner of Christianity over our lives without having really surrendered, without having really entrusted our lives to him. And in the light of missions, this is even more prevalent. I mean, in the light of mission, we're not going to be very successful in what we're called to do if we have yet to surrender, if we have let, yet to learn what it means to entrust ourselves 
to him. And like I said, this, is really, this has really been heavy on my heart because I spent two weeks in India and I saw people who lived this out in every aspect of their life. I saw people who lived this out in regard to money. I saw people who lived this out in regards to relationships. I saw while we were there, multiple people's family members died because they don't have the ability to go to a hospital. They, there's not free health care. They, they can't do that. Just like I said, us here, we don't have to worry about those kind of things. But over there, they might not be able to take care of it. There's, there's such a, a deeper reliance on the Lord for absolutely every aspect. And man, like I said, we just, I think it's, I think it's something that we need to come face to face with and really figure out, have I entrusted myself to the Lord or have I just entrusted myself to myself while waving the banner of, of God, while waving the banner of following Jesus? And I know that's a, that's a hard question to face up with, but it's one that we need to. And so with that, if you'd pray with me. Father, I pray that we would just be people who are willing to face those hard questions that we need to ask. God, I pray that we would be people who, who see that in your hands is the best place for our life to be. God, I pray we would be people who are able to live out the mission that you've called us to, living freely, not enslaved by, by anything, but Lord, just trusting that you go before us, you go after us, and you walk alongside us. Lord, every day we are so tempted to, to believe that we're better off by ourselves, we're better off on our own, that you just can't come through. But Lord, I pray that you would just do something in all of our lives to show that when we just wait, when we rely on you, you always come through. You do incredible things. And so, Father, I also pray that we wouldn't be people who compare our lives to other people. Lord, that we would just hear the call that you've placed on our lives and that we would run with it. Lord, let us be content. Teach us what contentment means. And God, show us that it's not about our abilities. Lord, that your mission, that your your plan, it carries on regardless of, of what we do, regardless of what we say, Lord. And I pray that in regards to our relationships with others, God, that when we deliver the gospel, that it would be the power of you that transforms a life and not our eloquent words or our, our fancy speech. God, I pray that you would just humble us, help us to see what it means to live a surrendered life as your son lived. In his name, amen.